Rodney Rohde is Regents Professor and Global Fellow at Texas State University, where he is also Associate Director of the Translational Health Research Center. Rodney, welcome. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to join you. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, this is going to be fun and I think very relevant for these times. We're going to talk about science communication and public health. So give our listeners a little bit of background. How did you get into this? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'll start with kind of uh, my background and where I'm at. So I am an infectious disease specialist, uh, trained as a microbiologist. So I'm credentialed a microbiologist to work in a medical laboratory or in a public health laboratory. I spent about a decade uh, at at the Department of Health in Austin and at CDC as a visiting scientist. And then I transitioned into academia here at Texas State University. So I've been here for about 20 years, Chris. And uh, really the last, I'd say, six or seven years, I've seen this trend in my career where I've had opportunities to, one, write more explainer types of articles based on either my own or others' research in the realm of public health and infectious disease, also in the realm of of the profession that I work in, uh, as well as speak. And so that's why I'm so excited to join you today, uh, because uh, the conversation today is going to be about, I think, health literacy and accurate science communication. And that's really what I've become passionate about the last, even pre-pandemic, about the last five, six years has been a really big part of my career. Yeah, so when I was looking at your profile, a couple of things stood out to me. A couple of infectious diseases that, of course, got my interest. One of those is MRSA, um, multi-resistant staph infections, and rabies. So MRSA is on the way up, getting more common. Fortunately, rabies is becoming less common. Talk about what we can learn from either or both of those examples. Yeah, let's let's start with... um... Let's start with rabies first, because that was kind of the foundation of where my career started. So when I went to work for the Department of Health back in 1992, I started out as a bench-level public health microbiologist. I worked in in multiple areas, uh, but ended up in the rabies arbovirus uh, area. And arboviruses are things that are mosquito-borne, so West Nile virus and Zika and other things you see in the news these days. And so really early on in my career, I got a really quick introduction to the issue of neglected tropical diseases. Uh, And so neglected tropical diseases are things that, you know, we don't really sometimes consider a problem in the U.S., i.e. rabies, uh, malaria, things like that, as we do when we see other countries like Africa or Latin America or even Asia. And so it is true, Chris, that rabies... Uh, prevalence and incidence has gone down in the United States over the last, I'd say, 60 to 70 years, primarily due to dog and cat and livestock vaccinations. So an important reminder that animal health is critical to a One Health kind of uh, forecast. But when you leave the United States and you start traveling to places like Asia or Latin America, Africa, other types of countries, that are not as uh, stringent on animal vaccination and other education and, and prevention measures, uh, rabies still kills up to 60,000 people a year. Now, on the list of big killers, that's, that may be thought of as, as actually not a lot, but it is a lot uh, when you get into those specific regions. So, you know, we could we could talk about rabies the whole time here today, but it's certainly one to think about 
uh, when you're traveling. And, and kind of a take-home message around science communication here is that if you're an American or perhaps somewhere within a particular country that has a better history with some of these types of diseases, but you are planning a trip abroad or going somewhere that uh, you're not familiar with, I always recommend to my students and colleagues and others, you should do a little background work. You know, where are you going? Are you going through the Panama Canal on a cruise? Did you know you might get malaria if you get bitten by a mosquito in those areas? Are you traveling to Latin America to a beach resort? And uh, you might want to know that playing with stray dogs or monkeys or anything like that could get you in trouble uh, because those diseases are actually quite prevalent in those areas. Uh, and I get case studies like this all the time. They don't always make the news, uh, but there are always uh, travel-related issues with diseases, whether it's being bitten by an animal, whether it's um, being foodborne illness. I mean, we all kind of know about water, but there's also issues with food and on and on and on and being careful around practices in certain areas. So again, uh, sometimes you'll hear that with respect to the U.S. or maybe the U.K. or other types of news services that kind of downplay some of these things. But in reality, if you're leaving uh, and moving around or traveling, you should be very familiar with those types of diseases. So that's rabies. Yeah, yeah that's rabies. And we again, we can talk more about that as we go forward. It's definitely an area I've written about and speak about. But when you move into um, a really what I consider a global uh, quiet pandemic way before way before covid um, and any other mass a massive issue you've heard lately is the issue of antibiotic resistance um, and i know we're going to maybe talk about this later but you and i grew up uh, in a very fortunate time uh, antibiotics have been around since since uh, alexander fleming discovered penicillin and and even he within years of that becoming a active drug noted publicly in some speeches and talks that he was already seeing resistance to penicillin. And unfortunately, all of us in healthcare and in the general public, we've used antibiotics in a way, uh, perhaps not in the best way of stewardship. Uh, you know, many people beg for them when they probably have allergies or a cold. Antibiotics only work against bacterial infections. And by using them improperly, whether it's in agriculture uh, whether it's in um, healthcare, whether it's us, you know, begging for them. Ultimately, we are all responsible for this issue because bacteria adapt, so do other microbes, but bacteria are notorious and diabolical in how they adapt to a, to a kind of conversational use of antibiotics. And so you get them adapting and mutating and all of a sudden, you end up with outbreaks of different types of bugs that, you know, back when our parents were living, I'm, my parents are living, I'm sorry, back when my grandparents rather were living, you know, they, they grew up with these things and a simple staph infection or even childbirth was a scary and dangerous thing because we had higher infant mortality rates. We had all sorts of things. So I think you know, MRSA, uh, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus is something I am especially interested in because my father has dealt with it. It's really why I switched my research efforts back in, oh goodness, I guess it's been about 
2004 or five when I when I moved into academia, I kind of switched to MRSA and other antibiotic resistant issues is because my dad had to have a knee replacement and some ankle surgery with some metal and pins put in, and he's basically dealt with MRSA for the last 20 years now. Uh, fortunately, he's okay, but he goes through bouts of it, um, and he's 82 now, but he's still, it's still a concern. Every time he has a procedure, he has to worry about, you know, it resurfacing or something like that, and that's just, that's just the nature of MRSA and and other types of resistant infections. So that conversation uh, needs to happen accurately. Um, one of my one of my go-to analogies is that um, you can you can think of MRSA killing as many people in the United States every day as a plane going down. About two to three hundred people die from MRSA infections. Yeah, not many people know that. It's it's out there to find in in the literature. Uh, it's kind of scary, right? I mean, a plane a day, if, if that was a true thing, if we had a plane going down every day, I think the public would be doing something about it. But it's kind of a hidden pandemic in general, and so we just kind of roll along uh, and live with it. But it, it worries me. I think it worries a lot of us who work in this area about the next 10, maybe 20 years of what's kind of coming to where we are we slipping back to a... Um, you know, post-antibiotic error, where uh, having children, where having, you know, a, a scratched knee or, or strep throat becomes a dangerous process versus just taking antibiotic and we're okay. Yeah, the plane analogy, one, good communication. I always like to break those things down to states. So you could divide by 50 or you could say California has 10% of the population 30 people in my state are going to die of that's MRSA right. today. And that's MRSA. That's not yeah. all of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's so many more antibiotic-resistant pathogens. So, I mean, we're just touching the, the tip of the iceberg here with MRSA. There's so many more. I want to back up to rabies just as a public service announcement for one moment. Yeah, please. And I'm not to contradict what you said, but to just uh, to point out that it's different in the United States than elsewhere. So many years ago, my daughter was bit by a dog um, at a Little League baseball game. Okay, no big deal. Oh, not vaccinated. They just yeah. got this dog. And of course, my brain and my you know four year old daughter. I'm just going, oh yes, you know. And fortunately, I went to the doctor, and he, you know, he called me down and <laughs> said it's been a long time since anybody in California right. has gotten rabies from a dog. But what are the um, animals that put us at risk in the U.S.? Oh yeah, great, great call out on that. And and first of all, I'm sorry you went through that. That is a common uh, and common issue, and and it's not something to. Um, uh, hide because it's a great educational moment when you talk about that story because most of my interactions with the public uh, and actual emails and, and comments on stories that I've written about rabies is exactly that. The anxiety is so high, it can mentally uh, mess with you uh, if you're dealing with it, even if it's a dog. Because right. it's um, not only fatal, it's a horrible way to die, and you're not going to know possibly for a long time. So you're going to be the mental thing is going to go on and on. That's right. That's, That's right. And so many, you know, and, and you are right. It's not as common in the U.S. And so those animals, so if the public's out there listening and worrying about this, these are the things to kind of just educate yourself about and not not totally worry about, but be educated about. So bats, 
bats are the number one in the United States kind of vector that typically uh, creates a, a bad situation with, with usually a child, but it can also be a teenager or someone who just isn't aware. So bat bites are almost unnoticeable and even you may not even notice you get bit. A lot of the cases I've worked on, you know, someone's reaching into a wood pile. Someone's uh, reaching around a tree or into, into brush or something. And bats, there are bats that live in these areas uh, and not always in caves and things like that. And many of these cases, you can look these up at CDC. There's some unfortunate ones. Might have been a child um, that did something, actually reported being bit by a bat. And uh, the parents weren't aware of this rabies issue and they just kind of moved on, right? And then two or three weeks later, first symptoms. And as you mentioned, Chris, once symptoms start with rabies, you're pushing 98, 99% fatality. I mean, it's really not much you can do. There are some things you can do. There have been some advances in rabies uh, therapy and, and preventative ways to kind of deal with that, but it's really rare to recover from. But bats, any type of wildlife, and I will say this for any interaction with wildlife is something to think about because there's other diseases including the the, the mouth and the canines and the, the flora of reptiles animals wildlife lot, not so much domestic animals but wildlife have really nasty bacteria you can get other really dangerous infections from animal bites especially so foxes uh, coyotes especially in the south are, are pretty prevalent skunks I mean, we're kind of taught to stay away from skunks, but they're they're one of the number one rabies carriers in Texas right now and kind of the south. In the east coast, kind of the northeast all the way down to Florida and Georgia, uh, raccoons. There's a huge raccoon rabies, um, really a, an epidemic that's been going on for 50 or 60 years, really difficult to deal with. Uh, and then other, you know, other types of, of to wildlife that are maybe not as common, like a bobcat or or something like that. So any type of wildlife, and that's why I mentioned whether you're in the U.S. or you're traveling, if you're interacting with, you know, chimpanzees or other types of wildlife where someone may have them because they can, there's no regulations <laughs> in that, you might not want to have them sitting on your head and taking pictures for Twitter. I mean, there could be some danger in interacting with these animals. And we've already seen, you know, with COVID and other types of outbreaks that that's that is the battlefront human and animal and insect interactions are are something to be careful with um i have dogs i grew up on a farm i love i love livestock i mean i used to have kind of pet cattle even when i was growing up that we kind of got close to but they were vaccinated they were cared for in the u.s uh, and so not as high of a worry but wildlife and bats, 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 bats are the number one reservoir here in, in the United States to consider. All right. So back to MRSA and antibiotic resistance. I'm curious a little bit about your dad. Like you say bouts of, so somehow it went away and he's being reinfected or is it sort of going quiet? It's a combination. You know, continuously. Yeah, it's and a combination. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question about the transmission and the reactivation, if you will. So it's really hard to know, but it's really either or. So, for example, um, one of my one of my stories that I often try to talk to people in the general public about MRSA is if 
if you and I were in a room with about 100 people, let's say we're in a room with 100 people, and I did nasal swabs of all 100 people and grew that up and isolated for what's in your nose. We all carry bacteria, kind of good bacteria. Staphylococcus aureus is relatively common. Every time I do that study, I've done it dozens of times in students, nurses. I've done it in in prison settings, correctional facilities. I've done it in rec centers. About a third of the people, about 30 people out of 100, will have regular garden variety Staph aureus in their nose. You're a carrier. Uh, So if you're a carrier, just to define for the audience, means that you're not infected, but you're carrying it on or in your body. And so it may not bother you at all, but if you're a healthcare professional or a handler or you're working with people and, you know, whatever the situation is and you get that on your hands, either through picking your nose or or it's just in the area and then you touch a wound or something like that, you could be a vector. You could be. Likewise, you could infect yourself if you do the same thing and you have a cut or, or something happens or there's a cut in your nose and it enters your bloodstream. So you could be the reservoir yourself and not really know it. Now, that's garden variety Staph aureus. What does that mean? That means garden variety Staph aureus can be treated uh, with many types of antibiotics and you take care of it. Once you have a Staph aureus that mutates and changes, and not to get too far in the weeds here, but what that means is the bacterium literally changes um, some of its genetics in a way that will make it resistant to the antibiotic. It basically creates a weapon uh, called a penicillinase, anything with ASE on the ends, an enzyme, and it basically blows up the drug, the ability for the drug to work. And so sometimes MRSA, MRSA, not the garden variety, regular staff, can also be a colonizer, a carrier, that's less likely. That's about 1% to 3% in that room. So maybe three or four people have it. But that's a little more dangerous now. Now you've got a resistant bug being carried around, again, with the same possibilities for spread. So that's one route. Kind of you have it, uh, and you can re-engage with that organism because you've, you know, because my dad has something going on with an infection. He's had some foot problems and things like that. He's borderline diabetic. Again, so this is an immunocompromised issue, uh, but it can happen. The other side is it's not that, and he goes in to have um, uh, some type of, he has a UTI. He's 82 years old. He has a UTI, and he goes in to deal with that, and while in the hospital, maybe he picks it up there because hospitals and healthcare facilities and dialysis clinics and it's not just healthcare it's also the community like i mentioned like rec centers and they be they've become unfortunately reservoirs un, unto themselves of of not just MRSA other other types of, of bugs that that might be there and so you know this kind of touches on the environment a little bit and this again is probably another podcast but I work in that area too. So uh, infection preventionist, environmental services people, the custodians of healthcare and other places are so important, Chris. They are actually, you know, the, the, the war front of healthcare. If you can clean effectively 
a way that can help eliminate some of those chances of acquiring a bug, they can actually help people not get infections. And so you may not have as many um, issues with worrying about antibiotic resistance because you never get it. So you can, you can work on all types of fronts uh, with respect to education, being aware of this, um, making sure the hospital you go to has a good track record. You can actually look this up uh, on different um, listservs. And it's actually a federal mandate now in most states that you report it on your websites. You're, they're called um, uh, infection ratios, SIRs, and you can kind of and they're and they're made to kind of help the general public like a one star to a five star restaurant. So it's kind of made in a sense. You don't have to have a degree in statistics, right. but you can look and go. Grandma's going in for, you know, a little procedure. Maybe I want to check the three hospitals in my region and pick the best um, published data around infection ratios, so that maybe I help lessen those chances. So, you know, stuff that most common people just aren't thinking about or are sensitive to. I like that because, uh, you know, typically if we talk about antibiotic resistance, we're going to say don't prescribe indiscriminately. But there are many other levels and reinforcing your point that education and awareness about all those other things. Right, right, absolutely. So, yeah, we can transition from that right into that communication part. What got you started in social media and then describe your experience around public health communication yeah. pandemic. So this is uh, kind of an interesting um, segue into this conversation because believe it or not, Chris, let's say, I'd say 10 years ago, um, I was pretty anti-social media to an extent. I'll kind of explain that. Uh, I had, at the time, I had two teenagers. Now they're in their mid-20s. But as any parent, you know, I was concerned about social media um, I didn't even have any. I actually kind of vicariously lived through my wife's Facebook page, and occasionally I would, I would chime in, especially around medical stuff. I would make a comment, Doc R. That's kind of my, my uh, online presence, and um, and left it at that. You know, I did join LinkedIn just to name one, and I'm not here to to promote one or the other, but that's one I joined about seven or eight years ago because it, it's more of a professional platform and I found it very useful. We've even interacted on uh, LinkedIn. It's just a nice kind of non-political, non-advice um, type of thing. It's more data and, and networking. So that was it. And uh, then my daughter, who's the older of my children, started college. She came to Texas State where I'm at, which was wonderful. And um, she started telling me, and, and my students did as well, dad or doc R nobody's going to know about this profession or this college major of medical laboratory science. If you don't get some type of presence, I mean, you've got a website, but our, our age really doesn't use those like your generation did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. So I kind of started, okay, I'll start at the, at the program level. So I created a Texas state uh, medical lab science Facebook account and a Twitter account and a LinkedIn account. And, and, and it kind of took off from there. So I immediately saw the benefits, not only in promoting and advocating for my profession and major, but also a way to uh, celebrate my alumni who are doing great things, helping the university with respect to recruitment and retention. And that's really where it started. And then 
um, I had already been writing and loving writing and, and doing presentations and things like most scientists do. But I, I suddenly realized, and I have really some great mentors in this area as well, that, you know, I, I conduct research, I do different things, and I still absolutely believe in, in peer-reviewed published research and will go to my grave knowing that that's critically important in science. But, Chris, when I take that and I put it in an explainer article or I talk to you on a podcast about rabies, I may have thousands of people who consume that data and maybe the most important data, the, the warnings, the, the information about patient safety and their parents and how you interact in healthcare and the things we just talked about versus someone sitting down that's, that's John Q. Public and going, oh, yeah, I'm going to read this eight-page peer-reviewed research article in the Journal of Medical Microbiology, and maybe it's a little over the top because it's too much statistics and it's too much uh, of stuff that they're just not familiar with, and it gets to be, you know, for lack of a better word, just boring. Why, why, do, why do I want to read this? I'm not going to read those. I'll just tell you right <laughs> much. And I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm yeah, counting I mean, on you. So you, you understand that in our world of short media bites and, and, and really good digestible and, again, accurate science and healthcare and medical information is so critical. And I just think we should be utilizing these platforms. And as you know, um, if we don't, someone else will. And so that was the other part, you know, as I started seeing this grow both professionally for a pro for my program and my profession, but personally as a scientist and an educator, a health educator, that I could maybe make a difference and I could maybe help my colleagues in the, in the laboratory, both in the medical labs and hospitals and in public health, somewhat hidden professionals sometimes, hey, let's, let's get out of the lab. You know, let, let's go online. Let's let's have this conversation with Chris Connor. Let's let's write articles uh, for people who want to. Let's interview with a local news station during COVID. Let's get out and talk about what we know. We know stuff. Uh, people need to hear it, and and so let's do that. Because if we don't, Chris, somebody will. Uh, and that's the old other side of this is that. There's so many headlines, and there's so much misinformation, and so much outright outright falsehoods sometimes around things that it's really difficult to put that horse back in the barn uh, when we don't get the right information out soon. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, your experience during the pandemic and strategies for communicating with disbelievers in our previous conversation. Um, you know, the example that I asked you about, and apparently you, um, Peter Hotez is a mentor of yours. I'll just point out what I love about him is people are throwing darts at him every day on Twitter. I just have to pull this out. And he never says a negative word. Yep. He just says, you know what? We created a patent-free vaccine for distribution. You know, he, he doesn't engage, you know, in an aggressive way. He just, this is the truth. Tells the truth. I mean, and I, I have to believe that that attitude gives him a little bit more credibility with those people who are on the edge. I know he's not convincing the deep believers right. on the other. Right. Anyway. Yeah. I mean, Dr. Otez is absolutely a hero of mine. You know, I've gotten to know him in the last three or four years, especially. Um, 
he is doing some great things. And there's others out there as well that are doing this, but he's certainly at the forefront of some of the people I follow and pay attention to. But you're right, and, and that's been um, a lesson I've learned. Um, I learned it early uh, because what, what I found, Chris, is that when I first started, uh, it was kind of the same evolution that I learned with writing. When I'm writing for the Journal of Medical Microbiology, I'm going to write a certain way because I'm writing for my peers. When I'm talking to my mom about what I do, I'm writing a different way or I'm speaking a different way. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's an internal um, voice that helps me to switch that gear sometimes when I'm online, whether it's social media or writing an explainer article or talking to you on a podcast, is that I might talk a little bit about the data, but I need to do it in a way like the five-star rating comment. Um, you know, we have to talk in ways that help people use analogies and stories uh, and even building relationships. And I think Dr. Hotez has done some of that. It's, it's again, something I've tried to do both. You know, I always say friendships are work, just like a marriage. You have to constantly engage and communicate and get better at it and learn to listen, even if you don't agree, and have a conversation. We've kind of gotten away from that in this country, in the world. Having a conversation, compromising, maybe not giving away all of your belief systems because you have a certain place you stand in, but maybe you can make some advances with people that are maybe totally anti-vax or maybe totally you know, COVID's fake or, or whatever. Maybe you slowly chip away at some of this because if you come at them with anger and a vitriol and um, you know, you're an idiot types of stuff, it just shuts that opportunity down. I mean, they're done. They're done with you. And then they also hammer you, uh, you know, in their networks. So it's, it's an amplification of problems. So that's, that's my method. And it is frustrating. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I'm sure Dr. Hotez goes home at night, like I do sometimes. And I have a different conversation with my wife about how frustrated I am, or maybe with friends that I know it's just there at the moment, but I do it there. I don't do it online. And so I try to answer questions. I actually ask, why do you believe that? How did you get here? You know, tell me your process of why you believe that anyone would set out to do something like creating a virus that will kill millions of people. How did you get here? You know, and I can't go down all the rabbit holes of conspiracy theories and things, but maybe it helps me understand why they're there. And maybe I can start chipping away with, well, you know, you do realize that when you were born and when your children were born, that there are decades and decades of research behind why we have childhood preventable vaccines. And without them, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, there was a huge problem with diphtheria and pertussis and measles and on and on. And people died like my grandmother lost a child to this, to polio. I mean, it's it's. It's decades of research and safety data. They're not always perfect, you know, and so we can have that conversation, whether it's online or, or individually, and maybe I make some inroads. Uh, and then there is a time, I'm sure Dr. Hotez is the same way, where you go, okay, we've reached a point where maybe this is time for me to move on because this is someone I may not convince, but you don't end it in a way that's hate-filled or, or angry. You just, okay. I disagree to disagree. I hope you, 
I hope you see the light of what I'm talking about one day. I'm moving on, you know, to the next person. And so it is a one-on-one uh, in many cases, and you hope you're hitting the masses, but it can be a very personal, and I come back to relationship building. It's never easy communication, relationship, and building on data where it's appropriate without over, just over swamping someone with research study after research study, because it's just not going to work. You really need a story, you need an analogy, a personal story about maybe something. I talk about my dad, you know, I talk about my mom uh, who had cancer at the beginning of the pandemic and how that was frightening. And I, I get it, but that's why I got her the vaccine as soon as possible because I wanted her to be protected because she's immunocompromised. So, so you can kind of go down that road and hopefully start working with people that are uh, needing some of that education. Yeah, I mean, relationships are it. I mean, people aren't convinced by data. They, there's a lot of emotion. So first of all, when you ask somebody how they got there, just asking them what they think has value in building that relationship. Absolutely. Because a lot of them aren't asked. They're just told, right? That's right. Even, you know, in the end, you're hoping to change their mind. Right. There's that. Um, and, you know, if you leave them angry, that that just raises the wall for the next person who's trying to. It really does. And, you know, even the level of, you know, you worry about how people's distrust in, um, however you want to look at it, authority, government expertise in different sciences or economics or whatever area you need to, I mean, it's about being courteous and, and, tr- and this is a, this is something I think the whole world needs to do more of is I don't agree with you, Chris, cause you're, you're on this side of this issue, but can we sit down and, and have a conversation you know, about it or, or whether that's online or in person, because we used to do this stuff, you know, we used to talk to our neighbors and our, in our classrooms and our, our Sunday schools, and we would talk about this stuff, and and we've gotten away from it big time. Is it's all, you know, it's all it's. Ooh, I got him back on Twitter. I posted this, and here's a meme kind of hammering this vaccine or this this political issue, and it's just like this is helping no one to solve problems, right. you know, because there's no repercussion to just throwing something out on social media and to people you don't know and ha- have no relationship with. Yeah. And so it's easy to do. So you mentioned, um, I mean, sort of vaccine disbelief and and what it was like 60s, well, more than more than that now, say, yeah. 80 years ago, whatever it is. Um, my mom had a sibling die of whooping cough. And, you know, most of us of our age are here. And if we were inclined to complain about vaccines, it's because we had them. Right. <laughs> we're alive to do that because we That's had right. them. So we're sort of the victims of our own success. So, um, and people are reluctant to pay for presenting, preventing disasters that don't happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had a long conversation yesterday about preventative health and the challenges around that, but that's another, that's coming up on another episode. Are there examples of public health stories that show the value of some of these preventative strategies. Yeah. You know, I think there's many. Um, and again, without getting into all the, the research data, we can generalize some of this. I mean, it's there. We can dig up the studies in the, in the decades, if not century of data around. Let's, let's start at the most simple thing, hand hygiene. Um, you know, list, uh, there was a guy named Lister and Simon Weiss way back. This was late, mid to late 1800s. 
that they realize that if they wash their hands uh, between medical, this is back in early medical school stuff, between working in a morgue and a, uh, a labor and delivery area, the infant mortality was astronomical because no one was, I mean, they didn't know. Nobody knew about yeah. germs like that. So they didn't know, but one intuitive person went, let's, let's wash our hands with this antiseptic, right? And let's, let's actually spray the tools we use in surgery with this, this disinfectant. And even the air, they had these kind of old school sprayers that they did in these old operating theaters. And guess what? Mortality for infants and other things in childbirth, I mean, almost dropped off the, the cliff because back then everything was very susceptible uh, to dying from these agents. I mean, this has been around forever. And so most common sense would tell you hand hygiene, cleaning, uh, sterile tools and surgery or other types of, of interventions medically makes really important sense. We take it for granted. You yeah. take it for granted when you walk into the dentist office and they're using an autoclave pick <laughs> in your, I mean, that could, that could literally kill you if you hadn't done that. So, we, I mean, again, victim of our own success, we take it for granted that, that people sat down and did this and studied it for decades and they've got published data and, and, and clean drinking water. I mean, basic public health, we know clean drinking water saves lives, whether you're filtering it, whether you're chlorinating it, whether you're using ozone. I mean, this is all we take for granted that, that Chris can turn on his faucet in his house and literally drink from the spigot if he wants to. He'll be okay. Most of the time, it should be fine. That's not always true when you travel. Uh, I think most Americans should travel more. You know, traveling and education, I think, are two things uh, we need to do more because when you go to a place that that's not true and maybe you get sick because you didn't pay attention, you really learn quickly that, hmm, well, that makes sense. Maybe I shouldn't be drinking water out of a reservoir in Latin America. You know, maybe I should be careful of how I do things. And, and again, love Latin America, but the, it, sometimes it's just the, the issue of where you're at. And so clean water hand hygiene. We've mentioned the discovery of antibiotics. Uh, unbelievable game changer. I mean, it basically helped the United States and our allies win World War II uh, because we didn't share the, the miracle drug of penicillin as quickly as maybe we would have if we weren't in the middle of a war. A war. Um, early vaccination, you know, going all the way back to smallpox yeah. uh, and, and what happened with that. And, and on it goes, you know, MM, MMR vaccines, and you mentioned pertussis and whooping cough and tetanus. And I mean, horrible scourges of the past that are almost rarely talked about. And again, victims of our own success. You know, if your grandparents are still living out there in, in podcast world for Chris's audience, talk to your grandparents. Spend a little time with them. Talk to grandma about having children, um, you know, that she worried would live until they were seven or eight years old because of some of these scourges. We are very, and I use this term in a medical, we are very spoiled in how we have so many advances in healthcare that we take it, take totally for granted. Um, yeah. I mean, you don't even think about it sometimes anymore. Oh, I've got an infection. I've got strep throat. I'll take the, I mean, that used to kill people. Right. Uh, it, it right. doesn't anymore. Yeah. You know, so, we could go forever on this topic and, you know, again, not to dig into all the history and the data, but it's there. It's yep. safe. Uh, and so, and that's the frustrating part when people 
pushback sometimes is it may take a story or just some reminders. Right. Yeah. It, it, I'm just going to leave everyone with that. I want to I thank you for your time. It's um that, as you say, victim of our own success, the things we take for granted. Um, I was reminded last week when everybody was passing around pictures of New York and the yes. smoke from the wildfires and pointing out that before the Clean Air Act in the early 70s, that's what it looked like. Yeah, great. And we think, oh, we don't need those regulations. Well, if you haven't been to somewhere where those don't exist, you don't realize, like, that is <laughs> what you don't see is the product of yeah. somebody preventing something. You know, and just to close it out, I know you're closing down here, but what a great reminder, right? I didn't even talk about being fortunate, even though we all get grumpy about regulations. None of us like to be regulated to death, but I'm telling you, clean water and clean air matter. And you want good regulations around healthcare. You know, are people properly licensed? Are they practicing within their scope of practice? We take that for granted. Every day, you know, a life is saved because of something people don't even know about. You know, uh, uh, working on assembly lines with good safety measures in place. I mean, we just kind of take it for granted that uh, we do these things the right way. So I'm always concerned when I hear about, oh, we need to deregulate all of that. I'm like, well, maybe not all of it, right? I mean, we need to really think about public health and safety. Yeah. All right. Rodney Rohde, Doc R on social. I'm going to put links to your LinkedIn profile and any other socials I can find for you in the show notes for this episode. This has been a blast and really informative for everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. And let's get back together again and talk, talk particular bugs sometime. Yeah. Let's do an hour on rabies. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. (laughs) 